0: Well, for most people, taking out a house means taking out, a, getting a mortgage, which is just a loan for paying off a house. And Katie and I are no exception to that. We took out a 30-year mortgage a year and a half ago when we bought our house. Um, but since we've only been homeowners for a year and a half, we have a long ways to go on the 30-year mortgage. So, you know, a year and a half. So we got 20 and a half more years left of payments. And we're making, you know, some little extra payments. And Katie's a math teacher and really likes saving money. So she has this little Excel sheet showing, like, this is how much we saved, you know, from this Alexa that we've done. So um, that's what the advantage of having a math teacher in your home. But if someone would come to us and write a check and say, I'm going to pay off your whole mortgage, we would pretty be pretty amazed at that because it's like, what? You just saved us... You know, 20 and a half, 28 and a half years of, of paying back this loan, and now we have 336 less payments to make. Like, you just wiped out all of our debt. But on the other side, if we were making our mortgage payments for 29 years and 11 months, and then somebody came in, we're about to ra- write our last check, and somebody came and was like, hey, I'd like to pay you know, for that last mortgage payment. we would be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, but understandably, our reaction to somebody paying off you know, the twenty nine or twenty eight and a half years versus paying off the one month would be much different we have much more gratitude for the person that paid it off now versus the person who paid it off with just one month left um, of course there's generosity in both cases but um, comparatively we'd be like well you know we did most of the work we did 29 years and 11 months worth of payments you did one whereas in the other case actually the person paid off more of it than we could have ever than we ever had to pay off and so we would have gratitude for both, but much different levels of gratitude. And today we're continuing our series called Living the Good News Together. As a church, we're learning how do we live in light of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And just take a moment, we did this last week, take a moment to flip to the back of your songbook. And there's a graphic on the back there um, that gives us the roadmap map for what we're doing uh, during this series. And every church has something um, that defines what they're all about. Um, and for us, what we're all about is the good news about Jesus. That's what defines who we are and what we're doing. And this graphic shows how our church is living in light of that good news. And so last week we covered the mission, which is the very first thing. So as a community, we are surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. We talked about that last week um, in our passage. And then this week we're covering um, what's in the middle there. Um, so how do we surrender all of life to Jesus? Well, it's by practicing these five things believing the gospel living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, and relying on the Spirit. Because um, we're supposed to do this as a community, and we ask the question, well, how do I surrender all of life to Jesus? How am I supposed to do that? Or how am I supposed to invite others to do the same? And our answer to that is these five community practices. And when we uh, look at our logo, you know, just keep your finger there and flip to the front, our logo has that crown in the middle and representing Jesus at the center. He's the king that we're all submitting to, and all those dots represent a community, And so when we're following Jesus, it's all about he's the king, he's the one we're following, he's the one we're surrendering our life to, but we're doing it together. We need each other in this process. And then the reason we do, why we do all this is so at the bottom of that page, the back of the songbook, it's so that as the family of God, we can show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. And so that's why we're, where we're going with all this. And today we're focusing on our first community practice of believing the gospel. In both our scripture readings for today, um, we see a picture of the gospel. In the first one, um, one of the sons just blows in his entire inheritance with foolish living. But then, when he returns to his father, he's embraced and forgiven and shown all this love. And So that's a picture of the gospel. Then our second scripture reading from Luke 7, um, we see, see two characters that are very similar to the two sons in that first story. And We're going to focus in Luke 7. And the big question this passage answers is, What kind of people love Jesus the most? What kind of people love Jesus the most? That's the big question this passage answers. What kind of people love Jesus the most? And so let's walk through the story again in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. The scene we walk into is a dinner party. Um, hosted by a Pharisee, and Jesus has been invited to this dinner party. And Pharisees, they were religious leaders in Jesus' day, and their main focus, what life was all about for them, was teaching people uh, and obeying the, the law, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. Well, actually, they even focused, not even on the first five books, but they focused on the law of Moses that was given at Mount Sinai after Israel got out of captivity in Egypt, And so that was their focus. They're saying, like, it's all about obeying this and we need to teach people to obey the laws in, um, in this book. And so Jesus and the Pharisees, they don't see eye to eye too often on how to live for God or even what God is like. And we'll see that clearly in this passage. And in those days, people would sometimes throw public dinner parties where they've had, they would have some invited guests... And they would have kind of a spot at the table. and then, But they would leave the door open for people to come in publicly to kind of sit at the sides of the room. So, you know, kind of imagine like there's a big table in the middle here um, and there's people sitting around it. And then that door would be open and people would come in and sit at, stand at the edges or sit at the edges and they could listen in on the conversation. And um, in this case, Jesus is kind of like the special honored guest. And so they can listen in on what are they going to talk about with Jesus. We're hearing about his teaching. And so this is kind of an opportunity people could come in um, and figure out um, what, what he's all about. And at a normal family meals, the table, um, people would sit at a table, but what it says here is um, they were reclined at the table, and so at these more special kind of dinner parties, the table would be lower, um, and people would pop off their sandals, and they would kind of lay on the floor, and they'd kind of be like be leaning, you know, like how we might be at a picnic or something. you kind of like lean and maybe have your head like this, and they'd be talking and eating, kind of leaning um, over to the table. And so imagine that we are guests at this dinner party held by this religious leader. We're all, you know, hanging out and we've been hearing Jesus. Some people are saying he's a prophet and he's a special guest at this dinner party. And now the invited guests are all, you know, reclining at the table. They're eating and talking. We're kind of on the edges of the room. We've come in from the public um, to hear what is going on. Who's this Jesus guy and what's he all about? But then, to our surprise, we're, you know, sitting here at this dinner table. Verse 37 says this, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So whatever this woman has done, the public knows about it. She has this reputation for being a sinner, someone who's acting immorally. And some people think like, oh, maybe she um, was a prostitute. You know, that would be kind of a thing. thing people would have seen out in public. But whatever the case, she must have heard Jesus teaching while he was in town. And it's obviously affected her life because she comes, hears where he's at, and then comes and finds him. And when she gets in the room, she just goes straight to him. There's no like, oh, you know what I'm just talking about. She knows who he is and she goes to him. And she goes to his bare, dirty feet and his tears are streaming down her face. They're hitting his feet and then she you know, takes her hair and starts using her hair to, to clean the dirt off of his feet. And then she kisses them after they're clean. And then she puts ointment, or, or some translations say perfume, is kind of like this expensive, probably the most expensive thing she has. She, she puts it on his feet to you know, maybe moisturize it and, and make them feel good. And so imagine we're guests at this dinner party, standing at the edge of the room, and, and we're watching all this unfold. And we're, you know, maybe we're talking and we're listening or whatever, and all of a sudden, you know, slowly but surely, silence starts to go around the room. And as everyone watches... Like, what is happening? This woman just came in. We all know her reputation. She's a publicly known sinner. Like, what is going to happen? And to our surprise, as we watch this, Jesus doesn't stop her. Jesus, someone who some say is a messenger from God, allows a publicly known sinner, possibly a prostitute, to touch and wash and kiss and put perfume or, or ointment on his feet and just you know just imagine somebody coming in that everyone knows in woodstock like oh yeah this person like is really like they just are not a good person they just came in here like obviously they probably won't do anything to my feet because i'm just not as important to jesus but just imagine like somebody coming in it's like oh, you know the you know the pastor is letting this person do this and just the reaction so people are kind of just stopping and then simon the pharisee who's hosting this thinks to himself well Surely if what people are saying about Jesus is true, that he's a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. He would know what she has done. And he would not let this person touch him because she is a sinner. So we can, we can see Simon's attitude. And we can see what he thinks of God. Sinners are dirty. If you so associate with them, you'll be dirty too. And if Jesus really was a messenger from God, he wouldn't associate with a dirty sinner because God doesn't associate with with dirty sinners, if God, if he really knew the mind of God, he wouldn't be having anything to do with this lady. Jesus knows what Simon is thinking, and and gives him this question, or he gets his attention first. He says, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And then Simon answered, "Well, say it, teacher." And then Jesus tells this really short story. There's a there's a guy who gives out loans. There's two people who owe him money. One owes five hundred denarii, which have been like uh, a year and three quarters worth of pay. You know you're Your salary for a year and three quarters. All of it would have had to go to this guy um, to pay off the debt. The other owes 50 denarii, which would be about two months worth of pay. But neither of them could pay what they owe. And so the money lender, this guy, just cancels the debt of both of them. Like, you know what? Neither of you have to pay me. And he just cancels both their debt. Now after this act, which of them will love him more? And this is the question Jesus poses to Simon. And Simon responds, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, well, you, you judge rightly. That's, that's the right answer. And now Jesus draws Simon's attention and everyone else's attention back to the woman. And verse 44 says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And Jesus draws this comparison between Simon and, and the woman. He holds her up as an example. Instead of dismissing her, he's like, look at look at her. Look what she's done. Look at, look at the things that she's doing, Simon. These are some of the things you should have been doing. And so the three things she does, um, we'll just go through them. In that culture, people wore sandals, and so they had dust getting on their feet all the time and so you know like when little kids or maybe you remember like running outside without shoes on for a long time you just get all this you know your feet kind of turn black and they're just kind of caked with dirt um, that's what Jesus' feet would have been like and, and washing somebody's feet in those days uh, maybe even today too would be like one of the lowest tasks you could do like they're gross they're just caked with all this you know dirt and stuff and they're sweating and so it's like that's like one of the worst things you can do and often um, it was a job for slaves to do so for Simon, it would have been polite for him to provide water for washing Jesus' feet. And it would have been even better if he provided you know, a servant to go and do the task. Um, but he doesn't do either of those. However, in comparison, this woman, she gets down on her hands and knees and she does the job of a servant by washing Jesus' feet with her own tears and her own hair. And then next, Jesus points out how Simon didn't greet him with a kiss. This would have just been a usual way, you know, kind of we do handshakes or hugs today. A kiss would have been like, you know, I respect you, um, and I consider you like a friend and somebody that I enjoy being around, and he would have done this. But in comparison, Simon doesn't do that. In comparison, um, the woman doesn't cease kissing Jesus' feet from the time she gets in the room. And then lastly, Jesus tells Simon that, you didn't anoint my head with oil. This would have been with olive oil, which would... You know, moisturize the scalp, the hot sun's beating down on it all day. And it would have been a special courtesy, but wouldn't have been expected. And in comparison, the woman doesn't just use common, inexpensive oil, but she comes in with this expensive uh, perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. And in every way, the woman goes above and beyond what Simon has done for Jesus. Jesus is Simon's honored guest, but who's the one who shows the greatest honor to Jesus? And so Jesus' conclusion in verse 47, he says this, therefore, I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little The woman's acts of love do not earn her forgiveness but Jesus knows she has received forgiveness because of the great love that she is showing to him and that's how the story of the money lender and the two debtors Is told she's the one who has the great debt that has been forgiven, and so she loves much. And then Simon, on the other hand, is compared to the one who's been forgiven little, and so he loves very little. And then next, Jesus speaks to the woman directly, everyone's been kind of talking about her, and then he speaks to her directly and tells her, Your sins are forgiven. And at all this, um, all those eating at the table uh, are kind of taken aback and they start asking, Well, who is this who even forgives? Sins? Who is this? Who does he think he is? Because um, everyone knows that sins are against God, and only God can forgive those sins. If you owe the bank money, I can't come along and say, like, you know what, your debt's canceled. You don't owe the bank anymore. The bank's the only one that can cancel your debt. And when it comes to sin, God is the offended party, and so he must be the one to offer forgiveness. And so does Jesus think he can stand in the place of God and forgive people of their sins? Well, Jesus pays no attention to this question, but instead he keeps talking with the woman, telling her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we see here, clearly, that it isn't her acts of love that saved her, but... Her faith that saved her. She heard Jesus' message. She believed it and she showed her love for him because she knows she's been forgiven much. She had a a burden of many sins on her back, but she can now walk away in peace. The burden is gone. She's been freed from them. The weight has been taken off. She no longer carries those with her because her debt has been canceled. And the big question this passage answers is, what kind of people love Jesus the most? And the simple answer is, those who believe the gospel. The kind of people who love Jesus the most are those who believe the gospel. God said he would send a king who would take care of our sin problem. A king who would bring salvation, who would bring forgiveness and peace, who would bring a canceling of debt, who would lift the burden of sin off our backs. As we heard last week, Jesus lifts it off our backs and puts it on himself. That's how he takes it off of us takes it off us and puts it on himself and says, I'm going to carry this for you. I'm going to take care of this. Everyone has sinned. All of us has made someone or something more important to us than God. And because of that, we have a debt to pay. Jesus paid that debt for our sins. Jesus, on the cross, went through it wasn't just physical pain and death that he went through, but he was forsaken for, by God. He bore the curse and the death that we owe for our sins. That's what we deserve. And because he did that, Through faith in him, we can hear the words, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't worry about these sins anymore. You're freed from them. They're off you. The burden is gone. You can go in peace because your faith has saved you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So what kind of people love Jesus the most? The answer is those who believe the gospel. But we can add some detail from this passage. Another way you could say it is, those who believe they're forgiven much, love much. What kind of people love Jesus the most? Those who believe they are forgiven much, love much. Those who believe they are forgiven much, love much. The sinful woman knows she has much for which to be forgiven. She has a a huge debt, but now it's been all paid off. She believes Jesus' message of good news. There's no barriers between her and God anymore. That debt that was between them, you know, that kind of, if you, some people say, like, never do loans within family. And maybe some of you have experienced that, like, that was just a bad idea. But it kind of can create this barrier between people. And we have this debt that we owe God, and there's this big barrier. But Jesus comes, and he pays it all off. And because of the forgiveness she's received, she loves much. And it's shown by her actions, her emotions, her for disregard for what other people think. She just loves Jesus. She doesn't care what this group of people think that she walks into. And by her sacrifice, she gives him you know, the most expensive thing that she owns and she puts it on his feet. She doesn't hold anything back from Jesus. And this is why our first community practice is believing the gospel. Our mission is to surrender all of life to Jesus and invite others to do the same. But we would ask... Well, why would we ever give our life to someone else? What would inspire me? What would make me want to surrender my life and give my rights over to somebody else? And then, secondarily, why would we ever want to stick our nose in other people's business and invite them to give their life to somebody else? Why would we ever do this? How would we come to that place where we're willing to do that sort of thing? It's by believing the gospel. When we believe that we've been forgiven of all our sins... We will love Jesus so much that we want to give him everything. And we'll want other people to know him too. And the question this passage answers is, what kind of people love Jesus the most? And the answer is those who believe they're forgiven much, love much. But on the flip side, what kind of people love Jesus the least? What kind of people love Jesus the least? And it's those who believe they're forgiven little, love little. Kind of people who love Jesus the least are those who believe they're forgiven little. They love little. In this passage, Simon the Pharisee doesn't believe he has much for which to be forgiven. Or at least not as much to be forgiven as the woman has. In house loan terms, the woman has a she has a 30-year loan, a 30-year mortgage, and she hasn't paid any of it. She knows she sinned against God and she knows she owes him. It's going to take the rest of her life, if you know, if ever, to pay it off. The debt is a huge burden to her, but Jesus has paid the whole thing off. And so now she is free and she's full of love for him. She says, you know, just imagine, like, some of you that have loans or have had loans in the past, and you're like, man, I just got to keep making payments on this, and it just feels like this burden. Imagine somebody just saying, it's gone, you know, there's all of a sudden this weight lifted off. You're free, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Simon also has a 30-year mortgage, but he believes that he's been paying it off for 29 years and 11 months. Even if Jesus forgives him the remainder, he knows that he's done most of the work himself. Yeah, maybe I need a little bit of forgiveness, but I've pretty much done the whole thing. He doesn't believe he has much of a debt to be forgiven, and so he doesn't love very much a Jesus' message of forgiveness. But just like the woman, Simon's actions flow out of his belief. She believes she's forgiven much, and so she loves much. He believes he's forgiven little, if anything at all, and so he loves little. In our actions, what we do, how we behave are directly connected to what we believe. And the way we like to say it uh, is that the fruit in our life, you know, what's growing in our life, the things people see um, grows out of, of what uh, beliefs our life are rooted in. And so the fruit grows out of the root of our beliefs. And many people say, "Oh, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins and he rose again. Um, but don't live any differently. Um, But we see in this story that this woman's beliefs changed everything about her. The fruit in her life grew out of the beliefs that she was rooted in. She knew, now I have been forgiven. And then that just totally changed how she was acting. She was free. And I had intended to bring a whiteboard tonight so we could diagram this out. Unfortunately, I forgot it. um, But we're going to do it in our imaginations. We all have imaginations. So we're going to see how this goes. Um, But if you want to write a definition of the gospel down... Um, here's one you can write down. The gospel is the good news of who God is and what he has done through Jesus. The gospel is the good news of who God is and what he has done through Jesus. So there's two parts there. Who God is and what he's done. And so what does the woman in this story now believe about who God is? Well, for one, she believes that God is Gracious. Grace means that we get what we don't deserve. She has this huge debt for our sins, and she deserves to pay it back. She's the one that accrued that debt, so she should be the one to pay it back. But now she believes that God has given her what she didn't deserve. God has paid it off. He has been gracious toward her. So one thing that she believes about who God is is that he's gracious. And the second thing she believes uh, is that God is compassionate. He sees people in a helpless state, and he comes to their aid. Uh, She could do nothing to get rid of her sins, but God steps in to free her of them. And so just imagine, we talked about fruit and root. Imagine there's a tree, um, and now we're kind of saying, like, what's at the root of this tree? What are the beliefs at the root of this tree? And so right at the very bottom, who God is. She believes God is gracious and compassionate. But now moving up, what does she believe that God does? Well, she believes God forgives sins. Um, He's gracious, and so he forgives sins. And she believes that God saves from our sins. Her faith has saved her. She goes towards Jesus. And she believes that God helps those in need. So she believes God forgives. She believes God saves. She believes God helps. And this is the good news. The good news about, is, is that because God is gracious, he forgives. Because God is compassionate, he saves. And he helps the helpless. And So now because of these things, she's been transformed. What was once true of her is no longer true of her. She was once a sinner. That's who she was. But what is now true about who she is? So we have our beliefs. Who is God? Um, He's gracious, compassionate. What has he done? He saves. He forgives. He helps. And now that changes who we are. She used to be a sinner. We're moving up the roots. Now what does she believe about herself because of who God is and what he's done? She believes, well, I'm forgiven. She believes that she's loved. She believes that she's free. She doesn't have this debt anymore. She's been forgiven of it. And now she believes that God Loves her, and it's because of who God is, and because of what He's done. And we're just imagining a tree here, hoping you guys are all seeing it too, because I'm seeing it. <laughs> who He is, what He's done, who she is—you know—that's all the root. That's what she's believing about herself. But now, what fruit does that pr- produce in her life? You know, this is all like fertilizer getting put at the roots of the tree. All these beliefs, and now it grows um, fruit into her life. And so, um, now, what fruit does this grow in her life? What do these beliefs lead her to do? Well, she loves Jesus. She was forgiven much, now she loves much. And she gives thanks to him. She just, you know, she, all this stuff she's doing with washing his feet and putting the on she's just showing, I just want to give this to you. I just love you. I need to show my appreciation somehow. And lastly, she's not afraid. So her fruit is she loves Jesus, she gives thanks to him, and she's not afraid of what other pe- people think of her because she knows what God thinks of her. She knows... God is gracious and compassionate that he's acted to save her and forgive her and to help her. And now she's forgiven and she's loved and she's free. And so now she doesn't care what other people think of her because she knows that that's what God thinks of her. But we can also trace this backward too. So we started at the roots and went up to the fruit. But you can look at Simon the Pharisee's site, uh, his life. What's the fruit in his life? Well, we see he's judgmental, he's harsh, and he lacks love for others. So he looks down on this lady, he's, he's judging her, um, he's harsh with her, you know, like, oh, what is she doing, what is she doing here? Um, and he lacks love. And then he's dismissive and he's prideful, he's concerned with appearances, he's saying like, well, if Jesus was a prophet, he would be concerned with this person, you know, coming up and, and you know, t- touching him and stuff, like, oh, I he should, shouldn't be doing that, and he would never allow that to happen in his life. And so, this is the fruit in his life, judgmental, lo- harsh, lacks love, he's dismissive and prideful, and he doesn't love Jesus he doesn't love sinners. But then moving down, so that's the fruit. You know, that's what we see growing in his life. Okay, well, what does he believe about himself? Well, Simon, he believes that I'm not in need of forgiveness. You know, I've been paying off this loan, and I'm not really in need of forgiveness. I'll make the last payment, whether Jesus does or not. So he's like, I'm not in need of forgiveness. I don't have much debt. He also believes that he's better than others. Um, and he believes, you know, I'm a rule follower. I'm keeping all the rules. This woman isn't, and so I'm better than her. And so he's believing that he doesn't need forgiveness. He's better than others, and he's a rule follower. Well, what does that tell us he's, what he believes about what God's doing? We're just moving down from the fruit all the way down to the root here of this tree. Um, well, remember, Pharisees, their main concern is obeying the law. They're saying, I need to obey the law. I need to get everybody else to obey the law. That's what matters. And so what he believes God's doing... Um, God is making demands. like God is giving out commands and he's expecting people to obey them. That's kind of the only thing that Simon is seeing that God is doing. And so what does he believe about who God is? What is God like? Well, he believes that God is a law enforcer. God is there to enforce the law. He's waiting for people to obey the law and he's there. I'm going to enforce this stuff. But he also believes, well, God's not gracious or compassionate because Simon doesn't... See any need for God's grace. He doesn't think that this woman at Jesus' feet should receive God's grace, and he has no compassion on her. He doesn't think, like, you know, wow, look at all these sins on, that she's carrying, and look at all that she's gone through in her life. He doesn't have compassion or, or feel anything for her. And so his belief is, well, God's not gracious or compassionate towards her either. And Simon thinks that this sinful woman shouldn't be near God, she shouldn't have any mercy shown toward her. Um, she's broken God's commands, and so she is unworthy. And it's true that God does uphold the law and that this woman is unworthy of being near God, but that isn't all that's true about God. Because Simon is missing the belief that he is a sinner too and that he needs God's grace and compassion just as much as this woman needs it. And, and as you think about um, those beliefs we ran through, you know, it would have been awesome if I had a whiteboard here so you could look at it and be like, yeah, you know, these are the things I'm... But just think about those things like, which one were you connecting more with? Are you like wow, I think a lot like Simon is thinking. Or are you saying, I think a lot like this woman is thinking, You know, God's gracious and compassionate and he's forgiving and saving and helping and now I'm loved and forgiven and now I'm free and I love Jesus freely and I'm not concerned with what other people think. Or do you have that side where you're like, you know, God's a law enforcer and all he cares about is making demands and making sure I follow him and I need to keep the rules and I'm in non-need forgiveness and now you're judgmental and harsh um, and you're making demands on other people too. And so, an important truth we need to take away from this passage is this. Know that God graciously forgives all your sin if you trust in Jesus. Know that God graciously forgives all of your sin if you trust in Jesus. All of it, past, present, future. If you trust in Jesus, your sin has been Totally dealt with. There is this record of debt standing against you, condemning you for all your selfishness, all your pride, of all your sin. And God took that and He nailed it to the cross. Jesus paid for every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit. Jesus paid it all. He completely paid your debt. But even though this is the truth, we can still convince ourselves that we don't really need forgiveness. Well, my sin isn't that bad and my debt really isn't that big. And the truth is, our debt is. Far greater than we realize. Our sin far worse than we are aware. And our need for forgiveness far more desperate than we can imagine. And so what are some of the ways that we convince ourselves we don't need forgiveness? Well, first, we, we hide our sin behind good works. We can hide our sin behind good works. That's how we convince ourselves we don't need forgiveness. We say, look at me, I'm good enough. Look at all these good works I do. we work hard to convince God and other people that we have it all together. And we try to get the attention off our sin... And on our good works. You know, like, oh, don't pay attention to that. Look at how good I am. Look at all the good things I do. Don't pay attention to all the bad things I do. And this leads to thinking we're better than other people. And the second tactic we use is we hide our sin behind other people. So first, we hide our sin behind good works. Second, we hide our sin behind other people. We say, well, look at them. I'm better. We know we have flaws. We know we mess up. We know we have sin. And even though we're working hard, um, if somebody accuses us of sin, we're going to say, point to them. And, well, they're worse than me. You know, pay attention to them. Sometimes, I think maybe everyone in the world would, would say to a police officer, like, why are you bothering with me speeding? There's people doing way worse things out there. And we, you know, there's always somebody worse that we can find than us. And so it's like, oh, if I can just get God to pay attention to him, to their sin and not my sin, then okay, it's hidden and I'm good. But this leads to comparing ourselves to other people. So one tactic is we hide our sin behind good works. Second is we hide our sin behind other people. And a third is we hide our sin under the rug. We hide our sin under the rug. We say, look, there's no sin here. We know we have sin in our lives, but we hide it. We don't let anybody see it. We always have this front that we put on. If we, if they don't see our sin, well, we're not going to get in trouble for it and they won't think it exists. And so we practice image management, always showing people um, our good selves and never any of the rough spots or the parts that need help or spots where we're, we're struggling. But this leads to being terrified that God and other people will find out that we aren't perfect. We're just terrified they're going to find out I'm a sinner just like them. And none of these tactics really get rid of sin. They're all about hiding it. None of these get rid of the debt. None of these get rid of the burden of sin. We can't hide behind our good works or other people are under the rug. We can't hide our sin from God. In fact, God is more aware of each of our sin um, than we're aware of it. And so that should be a terrifying process. Shouldn't that be scarier to us than other people finding out um, that we have sinned? But the good news is that even though this is true, that God is more aware of our sin than we are. We can stand before him without fear, without condemnation, fully loved, fully embraced, fully adopted as his children, fully protected, looking forward to a blessed inheritance and uh, in future as his children. Because through Jesus, our record is wiped clean. You don't have to hide, you don't have to compare, you don't have to blame, and you don't have to make excuses or justify yourself. When you trust in Jesus, you stand before the Holy God of the universe without a spot on your record, because he paid it all. And so often we live afraid of other people. We're afraid other people will think we are weird for loving Jesus. Or, or we're afraid they'll find out that we're sinners just like them. That, that we do things wrong, that we need help, that we need Jesus, that we don't have it all together. But, but look at the freedom that this woman in the story felt. Forgiveness from God led to freedom from fear of others for her. So wouldn't it be freeing to not... Be afraid if other people know you're a sinner. I want to be freeing to not be afraid if other people know that you aren't perfect and that you need help and that you need Jesus. We need to believe that God's opinion is what matters the most. And if you have Jesus, you're loved, forgiven, and embraced by the God of the universe. Just like that first story where he came back and he said, "You know, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hard servant. And the father just said... He's kind of like, nonsense, I'm going to bring you back in. You've come back. You want forgiveness. He puts the best robe on him and he hugs him and kisses him and then he throws a party for him. That's how God reacts to us when we come to him and we ask for forgiveness and want him to take our sin away. As I've been reflecting on where God wants me to grow this year, uh, one big area is my awareness of my need for his grace and forgiveness. And I need this because, honestly, I'm often more like Simon than I am like the woman in the story. What I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing to become aware of my need for forgiveness may also be helpful to you. So let me share what I'm going to be doing, and maybe this is something that you'll want to do too. Um, every day I'm trying to get in the habit of confessing my sin to God um, daily. I mean, this has two steps to it. One is we breathe out. You know, it's kind of like exhaling gets all the carbon dioxide out that's not helping you. And so we breathe out by confessing to God what we did, what we deserve for it. God, I was you know, harsh toward this person. I was judgmental. or I was impatient. I've i did, broken your law because I did that. And I've hurt that person and I've hurt you. And I've offended you. And for that, I deserve to be condemned. I deserve to be separated from you and alienated from you because I do this all the time, constantly, every day. I don't listen to you. And so that's what I deserve for it. But then secondly, breathing in the gospel. You know, we breathe in life-giving oxygen. And so breathing in the gospel by thanking God uh, for Sending Jesus to take what I deserve. And so I know this is what I deserve. I breathe that out and confess it. And now let me breathe in like, oh God, you sent Jesus and he took that punishment. He was alienated. He was estranged. He was forsaken. He took the curse I deserved. And now I can stand in your presence forgiven and loved and totally righteous. So whether you do this or not, this this particular practice, find some way of how you can be aware of how much you've been forgiven. The big question this passage answers is, what kind of people love Jesus the most? And the answer is those who believe the gospel. And specifically, those who believe they're forgiven much, love much. And on the flip side, what kind of people love Jesus the least? Those who believe they're forgiven little, love little. And believing the gospel changes everything about us. When we believe the good news that God is gracious and loving and merciful and he has acted to save us through Jesus, we are changed. We're given a new identity. And that's why Our next three community practices all have to do with identity, who we are. After we believe the gospel, um, we we focus on three uh, different identities about who we are. One is family, one is servants, and one is messengers. When we believe this good news about Jesus, that's when we become family and servants and messengers. And this week, breathe in the fresh air of the gospel. Breathe in the forgiveness. Breathe in the freedom and breathe in the good news about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this story of incredible forgiveness that this woman experienced and how it can be a model to us of uh, the kind of forgiveness that you offer us. We all know that our sins are many, just like this woman's word. And so would you make us aware um, of the fact that we are in desperate need of forgiveness. We're in desperate need of grace. Would you let us be people who are not afraid to admit to you that we need Jesus or to admit to others that we need Jesus? Would you let us just fully um Grasp on to Him and the salvation and forgiveness that He offers. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.